To the choir master, according to the to do not destroy, a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge, till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O God, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Amen. You'll find it helpful to have that passage open in front of you. What ambitions do you have? If you were listening a few weeks ago when we had uh, questions for the children, we asked the boys what they wanted to be. Uh, Our boys want to be bin men and lorry drivers. I don't know if that's your ambition in life. Um, But when I was a child, I wanted to be a a Euro MP, believe it or not. Absolutely true. Um, But when I went on a a exchange to Germany, we went past Brussels. I just saw how flat it was. And being a child of the Pennines, I just decided, no, this is not the career for me. But we have those sorts of ambitions, don't we? But I mean, well, what do you hope for, for your life? What sort of ambitions do you have in that way? Perhaps your answer differs according to who's asking. You know, so if you've got friends who are a bit pedestrian, a bit domestic, you know, they ask you, what do you want in life? Well, perhaps you'll emphasize, you know, domestic bliss, just want to settle down, bit of peace and quiet. Perhaps if you've got exciting friends, you know, that are always doing things and traveling everywhere, you, you sort of... Well, I'd quite like to go skydiving one time or, you know, tour the world or swim with dolphins. There's always the things that people come up with, aren't they? I don't know why, but in a beauty contest, they always hope for world peace. That's always their ambition for uh, for life. I, I should hasten to add, I've not been in any beauty contests uh, to do that or watch that many, uh, or any, in fact. Um, but apparently that's the answer that they already give. But for David, his answer to that question, what is your ambition, was this, that God's glory would spread over all the earth. That's what he wanted in life, if you like. That was his great ambition. That's what he wanted to see happen. We see it there in the chorus, don't we? Repeated again and again in our psalm. I would also find it helpful to have a psalm open in front of me. Verse 5, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over the earth. So really what David is saying here is that God is exalted above heaven and his glory will spread over all the earth. Because God is exalted so high, he wants his glory to be spread over the earth. He wants what's true up there to be reflected down here. 
He wants what's true vertically, that God is so high, to be expressed horizontally across the whole world. That's what David wanted. That was his ambition. And that was reflected in the ambitions of his life. If you know the story of David, he wanted to build a temple for God, didn't he? To bring glory to God. He wanted to enlarge the nation so that there might be more people who would praise God. He wanted God to be honoured by all. And this psalm here, Psalm 57, is an invitation to join in with David's great ambition for his life. We're supposed to read along or sing along with David and say, yes, amen. Now the context of the psalm is similar to the previous ones we've seen, isn't it? David is in trouble, hiding in a cave. People are seeking his life. And we might think, well, our lives are a million miles away from that. How can we join in with David's? We're not stuck in caves hiding from people. But whatever our circumstances, that big ambition over everything should be the same. It's amazing, isn't it, if you think of it, that David keeps that ambition while his enemies pursue him, while he's stuck in a dingy cabin. That should make us realise that this ambition actually is bigger than our circumstances. It's bigger than all our problems and issues. We're dealing here this morning with the very glory of God. Now, David's invitation really comes in two parts. Exalting God for his mercy and praising God to spread his glory. So firstly, we're to raise him, hi, um, for his mercy. Have a look at verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by. Do you see here that David asked God for mercy? Not because God is reluctant to give it, but because God has richly provided it. As David writes the psalm, he's already taking refuge in the shadow of his wings. That's already characterised his life. And the picture here of taking shelter in his wings is, is a picture of like a chick being protected by the mother hen. It's the picture of a child clinging to her mother in the middle of a thunderstorm. You know, they're sort of cuddling together and the child says, pull me close, keep me safe. But the thing is that she's already safe, he's already in her, in her arms. See, David is calling for mercy, he's calling for this refuge, but he's already in the place of refuge. He's just asking God to, to do that, to, to make him feel it. And do you know here that he asks for mercy rather than protection? That surprised me as I read this psalm. Because if you think about it, he's in a dangerous situation. We think, you know, protect me, O God, save me, O God. But David asks for mercy, not protection. Now that may amount to the same thing, that God is actually going to rescue him. But mercy is a very different ask from protection, isn't it? You see, mercy implies that he has no right to demand what he's asking for. Mercy implies that it's actually against how he's behaved and acted. So let me put it this way, if you uh, had a bodyguard, I don't know why you'd ever have a bodyguard, but if you had a bodyguard, you wouldn't ask them for mercy, would you? You'd ask them for protection, because that's their, their job, that's what they're supposed to do. Who do you ask for mercy? Well, you ask for mercy from someone who you've upset, don't you? That's who you ask for mercy. So David knows what position he is before is in before God. He knows that he's a person who's in need of rescue, not because... He's a good person because he's messed up. So he asks God for mercy. And he knows that we all need mercy. 
But do you notice as well that David is confident that God will send that mercy? Have a look at verses 2 and 3. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. He's confident that God will send mercy. He calls to God most high, the God who is exalted above the heavens. And he knows that this God will send help from heaven. The God who fulfills his purposes in him. The God who is in control. He's confident that he'll receive mercy. That his enemies will be defeated. But how can he be confident of mercy? Isn't that by definition not possible? Because by mercy you're putting yourself in the hands of the given, not the receiver. You're asking somebody for something. How can he be confident that he'll get it? Well, he's confident because he knows what God is like. Because what does God send there in verse 3? He sends his steadfast love, his hesed love, his covenant love, his bound love. It's like a marital love, a bond between two people. Stronger than a feeling, made with an oath. God has bound himself to his people, including David. So David can pray confidently for God's mercy. He also sends his faithfulness, his stability, his solidity, his truth. He's saying here that God is not a fickle deity. He doesn't play games with us. He's reliable. As he has acted in the past, so will act again in the future. Not because he's boring, but actually because he's faithful. He's a rock of stability. And because of these two things, David can be confident of mercy from God. And can I say here this morning that we can be too. We can be confident of mercy. Not because we deserve it. Again, by definition, mercy excludes that. But because God has bound himself to his people. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. We can turn to God confident of mercy. Not because we are loving and faithful to him but because he is loving and faithful to us. He has bound himself to us in the blood of his son, a new covenant, a new oath in his blood. And this is true, whatever life throws at us. Spiritually, he will not let us go, even when we're in a tight spot, even when we're in problems, in difficulty. And David here in our psalm really was in a tight spot, wasn't he? Have a look at verse four. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. So David really here is in the lion's den. Don't worry, I haven't got the wrong person there. I do mean David. Daniel will be in the lion's den in another few hundred years' time. But here is David in the lion's den first. And if you think about it, that's quite fitting for his situation, hiding out in caves, isn't it? Where lions live. But he speaks of his soul being in the midst of lions. Do you notice that? It's not just him, it's his soul. His physical peril is affecting him emotionally and spiritually. And that's often true, isn't it? Those two go hand in hand. We are soul and body. The two are linked together. One affects the other. We're not spiritual islands unaffected by what is going on around us. When there are struggles in life, there are often struggles in the soul as well. 
That's part of our human condition. Now, we're very good often at treating the physical, the outside problems, but not the inside problems, the spiritual. But actually, we need to look at both, don't we? So David is feeling this pressure, this stress, this anguish of the soul. Why? Well, because of people. If you look, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. So they're not literal lions, but he uses that word because they're circling, they're prowling, they're hunting him. They're seeking to devour him, bring him down. It's fascinating though, isn't it, that the features he chooses to mention about these people are their teeth and their tongues. I mean, if you're going to describe a lion, you might go with the claws, you might go with the teeth. But I've never been scared of a lion's tongue. That's not something that's particularly find scary. I suppose if you're faced with it in front of you, it might be a little bit scary. But do you see, they're both things to do with the mouth. Could it be that part of this being pursued, part of this being attacked, is actually slander? Do you see as well that uh, in our reading that we had earlier, they, they had made lies about David, hadn't they? They'd said that he was out to kill Saul. They're bringing down his reputation, his name. Changing the well-known proverb, uh, you know, their words are like sticks and stones. That, you know, they, we say, don't we, sticks and stones will break our bones, but actually names do hurt, don't they? Sticks, they can be like sticks and stones. So as well as fear of his own life, actually, here, he's scared uh, of the slander. He's oppressed by the slander and the, the things they're saying as well. And I think that's much closer to where we are this morning, isn't it? Christians' reputations are being dragged through the mud in much of the popular media, aren't they? We're called bigots, hypocrites, sexists, homophobes, narrow-minded, naive. We know it's not true, but it can still hurt, can't it? But God is not mocked. He is exalted above the heavens. Those who seek to bring him down waste their breath, don't they? The breath that God has literally given them to raise him for his salvation, for his great mercy. So God is still exalted in in his mercy towards his people. Now we can't actually raise God any higher, can we? I always used to get confused with this when we talk about lifting God up as though actually we could get him any higher. There's two reasons for that, isn't there? We couldn't actually lift him any higher than he is. It would be like uh, children talk about, you know, how how big is the world? And they go, you know, is it it this big? No, no, it's bigger than that. Bigger than, or is it this big? No, no, it's even bigger. As though the child thinks that they can somehow put their arms to express how big the world is. We are not strong enough to lift God any higher, uh, any more than a child can express how big the world is. And on top of that, there's no higher space that he can occupy. Even if we could lift him, there'd be nowhere for him to go. It'd be like an employment agency offering the President of the United States a more powerful job. Perhaps some of us wish they would. Uh, but um, or Maybe a different job. Um, but you can't get any higher, can you? That's the highest you can get to. So we can't lift God up in that way. So what can we do? We can bow ourselves down. That's what we can do. We can humble ourselves before him. Stop pretending that we can do him a favour, lifting him up. Stop arrogantly exalting ourselves as though we're anything to shout about. So we lift God up as we bow ourselves down, as we praise him, as we recognise his greatness and glory. Which is our next point. We can raise him for his mercy and we can praise him 
for his glory. Now I don't mean by this for his glory in a way that we can make him any more glorious, in the same way that we can't lift him any higher, but what we can do is make his glory known. And it all starts with an act of rescue. Have a look there in verses 5 and 6. Sorry, verse 6. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Do you see here that God rescues David? It's the sort of after effects of the first part of the psalm. God rescues David in an entirely unexpected way. They set a trap for David, but they fell into it themselves. Perhaps this is a reference to to Saul hunting David, only to actually be caught in his own ambush, if you like, uh, in the cave. But do you see, it's not lightning bolts from the sky. It's not utter destruction. Actually here, it ends uh, in the passage that we read with an admission from Saul that David will be king. How miraculous is that, if you think about it? More than just destroying Saul... Actually, God changes Saul's heart. Now, it's going to go back and cause all sorts of problems. But do you see how he rescues David? He brings it round. God rescues in remarkable ways. And that don't always end in bloodshed as we pray for the defeat of our enemies. And it's from their own hands, isn't it, that actually this comes. It's their own stupidity, if you like, that brings about their defeat. Because if you think about it, if you, if you didn't, if God hadn't said that he'd done it, you might just think that this was hugely ironic. Somebody setting a trap and walking into it themselves. You think, oh, that's, you know, typical. That's the way it happens, isn't it? But God here, David is acknowledging that God has done it. Because in our story, God in a way doesn't seem to supernaturally step in, does he? But he's in control. And this is true in our lives too, isn't it, as God rescues us? Those coincidences that happen aren't always coincidental, are they? Those just so happened don't just so happen in our lives. God's hand is there guiding our lives and the lives of others. He let them fall into their own trap. But David understands what's going on. David sees God's hand in it. And David cannot contain his praise. Have a look at verses 7 and 8. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. Now, David's not boasting here when he goes, my heart is steadfast. What's happening here, he's not saying his heart is awesome. He's saying that his heart is safe, is stable, is set, is fixed. David here is saying, my heart is set firm, O God, my heart is set firm. I will sing and make melody, awake my glory. What is David's glory? His music, if you read it. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn, I'll sing so loud, I'll play it so noisily that we'll wake the sun up. We'll make the dawn come early. That's what he's saying, he's overflowing with praise. Now, for David here, his praise was expressed musically, wasn't he? He talks about the harp and the lyre. Now, that applies to each one of us as Christians. We express our praise musically, whether we're Leslie Garrett or whether we're James Blunt. I'll leave you to decide which one is the good singer, which one is the bad one. But there's something innate in us as human beings that means that we sing to praise. So think about it, it's not just Christians that sing, is it? If you go to a rugby ground, if you go to a football ground... What do they do? They sing. 
If you think about it, nearly every pop song that's ever been written is praise in some way of someone or something. You know, isn't she lovely? Yeah, Stevie Wonder. What a wonderful world. Wasn't it good? So good. Wasn't he fine? So fine. We sing to praise, don't we? It's part of being human. But not all of us are big singers, though, are we? Not all of us sort of, you know, imagine there's some people who walk around almost like they're in a musical. You know, they walk from room to room singing. Some people are like that, but not all of us are like that, are we? Well, here, actually, David, it, it doesn't really mention the singing part, does it? Well, it does sing and make melody, but he also mentions the musical instruments as well. For David, it seems to be as much about playing an instrument. If you think about it, that's what David did. So on the back of your sheet, you'll see there's uh, 1 Samuel 16, 23. David uh, calms Saul by playing the harp. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. We don't actually know what David's singing voice was like. Actually plays the lyre. That's how he calms down Saul. Now, I don't want to push this too far, but it seems as though the act of playing instruments was part of his praise to God. I don't want to push it too far because we actually need words, don't we, as we sing. Uh, but David seems to be involved in it through his music. It made me think of Eric Little, uh, who was the famous uh, sprinter. This is what he said about his sprinting. He said, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. In a way, his running was Eric Little's glory. It was a thing that God had given him, his expression of himself, just as music was David's. In his own way, he was sort of praising God as he ran. So what is our glory? What is your glory? Well, it could be singing. And like I say, it applies to us anyway, because as Christians, we are to sing and praise. But our praise can express itself in other ways too. We can praise God as we pray. We can praise God as we write things, like poetry. We can praise God in art, in music, in our general conversations, as we talk to one another, as we speak of God to one another, we can lift God up. Now, I'm not talking here about a free-for-all. God actually decides how we praise him, not us. But it does say in Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. So we're to offer our bodies, which does give us a fair amount of scope as to how we worship. But in whatever form, in whatever form we choose, in whatever form God has given us, do we overflow in praise to God when we bear in mind our rescue from sin, as we see God's goodness to us day by day? I remember uh, a few years ago going on a beach mission to uh, mid-Wales, and uh, Wales is a lovely country. Oh, Rich is not here. I don't have to say that, do I? Uh, <laughs> it is a lovely country, though. Um, but I remember uh, there's an evening. We, we you get an evening off on beach missions uh, once in the week. And we had this evening out this lovely bay. And the sun was going down. We walked up this hill. And uh, I think the girls had all sort of stayed down. It was just a group of blokes stood on the top of this hill, looking out across the sea. Uh, looking as the sun went down, someone just started singing, Oh Lord my God, when I an awesome one. And we just all started joining in. And it was an amazing experience of just overflowing. We just couldn't help but sing. 
And, you know, whoever was down on the beach was to wonder what on earth was going on. But, you know, these half a dozen blokes up at the top of a hill. But that should be, in one sense, it should be normal in our lives. Is praise a reoccurring experience in our lives? Not just on Sunday when we're supposed to. Because there's a danger, isn't it, that we make Sunday an isolated experience. As though we come here to worship and then we don't do that for the rest of the week. I've been told, because I haven't done a bit of running in a while, but uh, running a long run uh, once a week is harder if you haven't done any running for the rest of the week. If you just start, you know, I I think it's the same with the gym. If I've not been to the gym for a while, it's harder to do a, a long gym session. Well, actually, I think that's true with worship as well, isn't it? On a Sunday. Perhaps our joint praise would be better if our souls had been praiseful through all the week, if we warmed up our muscles through the week, if you like. And I think that's a virtuous circle, isn't it? As we do that through the week, it's better on a Sunday. As it's better on a Sunday, we're more encouraged to do that through the week. So how can we encourage ourselves to praise through the week? Well, I think the Bible is the best praise fodder that we've got, isn't it? As we read our Bible and understand it. But there are good Christian books as well, good Christian music. There are things that we can do to put ourselves in a praiseful attitude for what God has done for us. David's heart was overflowing with praise, wasn't it? Is ours. And finally, David wants God's glory to go global. Have a look at verses 9 and 10. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Now remember here, this is before David becomes king. He's not a global figure, if you like, at this point. He's hiding from Saul in a cave. Yet his view of God's praise is global. He wants to sing God's praises among the nations, among the peoples. God's steadfast love is higher than the heavens. His faithfulness to the clouds. Why shouldn't the world see and praise? God is worthy enough for the praise of every living creature. Everything that has breath. And God intends to spread his glory as people praise his name across the nations. So really what we have here is a basic concept of mission or evangelism. He wants to praise God among the nations. The implication is he wants them to hear and praise God too. He wants God's glory to be recognised. He wants God's name to be praised. There's a a book by John Piper that you can basically sum up in in one phrase. A lot of John Piper books you can do that. Um, But this is one of them. Uh, The phrase is, mission exists because worship doesn't. Mission exists because worship doesn't. That's certainly how David sees it. He wants to praise God's name among the nations. God wants to create more worshippers of God. He wants God's name to be exalted as people come to him for rescue and praise him for that rescue as David does. So our evangelism, in a way, should be an act of worship. I'm not saying by that that, you know, we need to go up to non-believers and start singing, you know, for all have sinned and fall short to the glory of... I don't know how you'd sing that. Um, but I'm not saying we need to make it musical. What I'm saying is in our interactions with non-believers, they need to see our praise to God. Can they see that in our lives we're overflowing in praise to him? In the way that we talk about God? In the way that we live? And that's a challenge to us all, isn't it? To live that way and to allow people to see that, that we're really serious about praising God. 
So we can praise God for his glory so that others might see. So it should be our ambition to see God's glory spread over all the earth. More than our employment ambitions, more than swimming with dolphins, even more than world peace. Because actually, peace will only come when God's glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And we can begin to do that, can't we? As we raise him for his mercy. As we praise him in our conversations, in our prayers, in our glories, in our singing.